while those barriers have been coming down, they've really been shattered. But again, understanding how do you speak to that talent in a compelling way, as opposed to, well, now I can just hire anywhere. So I'm going to do that because having that infrastructure, having the understanding, having the tools, having people that truly know what it means to work, lead and manage in a distributed way is different. Welcome to In-Depth, a new show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, their companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. Through over 400 interviews on The Review, we've shared standout company building advice, the kind that comes from those willing to skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. With our new podcast, In-Depth, you can listen in to these deeper conversations every single week. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In-Depth, I am thrilled to be joined by Leah Sutton. Leah is the SVP of Global HR at Elastic which powers open source software for search and data analytics and went public back in 2018. Lee has worked in HR since 2000 and first cut her teeth working at Bloom Energy. She's perhaps best suited to talk about the challenges and opportunities for HR departments in our current moment. Elastic has been a distributed company long before 2020 and currently has over 2,000 employees spread across 40 countries and 48 states. Leah joined Elastic back in 2016, and she said she was drawn to the company in large part because of the unique challenges of scaling culture across a distributed company, even though at the time she was signing on to be a team of one. In today's conversation, we look closely under the hood of what Leah calls Elastic's distributed by design company DNA. She walks us through her learnings tackling challenges companies now are paying close attention to including how to interview for leaders that can manage well remotely, and even dives into the nitty-gritty details about payroll and compensation across regions. She also outlines a few of the tactics Elastic has leaned on to smooth over some of the language and cultural barriers that often trip up global leadership teams. Leah zooms out even further to discuss Elastic's source code, which she describes as not so much a traditional list of values— but more the things that make Elastic, Elastic. One of her favorites is Be Humble, Be Ambitious at Elastic, We Are Both. And she's got plenty of stories of how this mandate starts with Elastic CEO, Shay Bannon. Finally, she makes her pitch for why companies should talk about operational debt as much as they do technical debt. Today's conversation is a must-listen to for HR leaders, of course but also for folks on the hunt for a more systematic approach to the new challenges of distributed work, whether they be operational questions, crossed wires, or management stumbles. I really hope you enjoy this episode. And now my conversation with Leah. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Wanted to start by maybe talking at a high level. We were talking about this a little bit before we got started, but for all the obvious reasons, there's been a lot of writing and sharing about running distributed companies, but just wanted to start by having you share some of the things that you've come to learn over the past five years about successfully running a distributed company that you think aren't talked enough about, 
or maybe I'm sure lots of people over the past months have reached out to you for advice. <laughs> and, you know, you leave those calls or Zooms and you're like, oh, I'm surprised they didn't ask X or, or they should really be asking Y. I thought that might be a great place to start. I mean, I think one of the things that will be interesting is as we snap back to, I hate the new normal, the next normal, whatever you want to call it, companies are saying, oh, now we've just shifted, right? Now we're distributed. We know how to do it. And the fact of the matter is it's intentional. Like we always say distributed by design. And I think there are a few things that there's a point of difference there in that for five years, we've been screening people, particularly managers and leaders to say, have you worked in a distributed fashion before? And if so, great. Tell me about that. If not, tell me about your communication style. Help me understand how you would approach leading a distributed team. And so this very intentional focus on finding folks that have the experience or fundamentally understand the difference that it's not the same thing to lead a team where you're not getting into a conference room or you're not co-located in an office than it is to be in that situation. And so I think that the thing I, I always counsel people is like, listen, they're, you're doing it because you have to right now, but that doesn't mean that people are going to be great at it or that they even want to do it that way. So I think that there's a real intentionality about how to think about leadership and management in particular when you are distributed. The assumption is, well, we didn't think we could do it because we hadn't done it and now we're doing it. And it's just, we've done it because of force of necessity. It's not actually what it's going to look and feel like when people can get back to an office. So I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is just really thinking about the tools and who is working for you and how you can extend your reach. And I think one of the things that we've always worked on, perhaps not even as best as we could at Elastic, is thinking about who are the populations that you wouldn't reach if you're just focused on Having your engineers in the Bay Area or having your finance team in the Bay Area or having sales is, is interesting, right? Because sales is more typically distributed, right? You're selling regionally, you've got folks out in the field regionally. But core functions where they have more typically been office-based companies for a long time, they've lost out on talent that perhaps required flexibility, didn't want to make a terrible commute, who you know live in a small town in the mountains or in the Midwest or wherever, but that's a lifestyle choice, right? Their family's close by, they want to be there. And there've been struggles because they haven't necessarily had opportunities or options in terms of career paths or growth because of geography. And I think that while those barriers have been coming down, they've really been shattered. But again, understanding how do you speak to that talent in a compelling way, as opposed to, well, now I can just hire anywhere. So I'm going to do that. Because having that infrastructure, having the understanding, having the tools, having people that truly know what it means to work, lead, and manage in a distributed way is different. And so I think that's something that will be interesting is how companies start to access talent pools that they didn't formerly have access to, and can they do it successfully? And I'm not talking about like, well, now we just, we don't need to have it in the Bay Area, so we're going to set up a an engineering center somewhere else, or we're going to do it, we're still going to do it in a node kind of way as opposed to in a really distributed way. So I think that will be an interesting thing to watch as well. So one of the things you just talked about was this idea of hiring people that understand or maybe are built for this idea of distributed leadership or management. And would be great to talk about what are you looking for to assess that someone would be a great person running a remote team versus a great manager in general? And I'd caveat by saying it would be very easy just to go and interview somebody and say, oh, you worked at Envision, so you manage people remotely and were you right. successful? <laughs> right. you know, right. in, in terms of your own experience, obviously, you had never done this and you've obviously been hugely successful and run a very large team now. And so what do you look for in somebody who has not done it before, but gives you conviction that they could be exceptional? And what is different about that person than just an exceptional manager? Communication is always key. From my perspective, great leaders, great managers, they 
by necessity must be great communicators. Now, can they do that in a written way? Can they do that over video? Can they do that on the phone? And so I think it's one thing when you can sit in a room with someone and have a conversation and you know what they say, like 80% of communication is body language. You've just lost 80% of your cues, right? So are you able to pick things up and intuit these things via these other forms of communication where you don't have the luxury of being able to sit six, let's say six or eight feet away from someone, right? So I think that's very different. And I think just that when you are communicating, this is the path we are on. This is the direction we are going. Being able to do that in an incredibly crisp, articulate way. For us in particular, because English is the, the language that we work in, but we have people across the world for whom it is not their first language, that precision of language and being really clear in communications becomes even more important. So I think there's that piece. But at the end of the day, to me, great managers have to be able to connect. And so if you are not able to connect in these ways that are perhaps different for you or not comfortable for you, that's going to impact your ability to inspire a team, get good feedback to a team, connect with individuals, and ultimately have them be their best selves at work. So I think that like that communication piece, but not the, we just sort of take for granted that, oh yeah, I ma- like I manage people. I'm going to be able to see them every now and again and connect with them. Right. So I think there's just a, there's a shift. And I think it's Elastic in particular, I would say we're very heart centric, human centric in terms of how we lead people so that you're not just getting down to business, right? You're figuring out and I've been saying this for a long, long time, but like ultimately when you're distributed and you're working over Zoom, it's very intimate, right? You're in a person's home. And so that's not traditionally what has happened. So I think really reading cues in a different way is going to be really critical. And that can be very difficult for folks. So how does that map to the interview process for a manager or leader? Can you talk a little bit about that in some detail? Absolutely. So I think there's a real focus on that behavioral situational set of questions. Walk me through that. What worked? What didn't? What have you learned? Funny enough, like I don't think the fundamental way you interview effectively has changed, but it's really queuing in on the things that didn't work and focusing more on, oh, great. So you had that great experience with your team. What team member weren't you able to take along and why? And how did you correct that? I don't believe anyone just gets this out of the gate, right? It, it does take work and it does take patience, right? And testing and learning. People are individually motivated. It's doubly hard over in kind of a remote environment. So really understanding through your the questions that you're asking are they rote or are they going to really figure out a more individualized, like, can you come to an individualized way of communicating and connecting with people? Simply asking questions around how they've done that and ensuring that you're getting good examples and continue to push. Cause it's, it's as like, yeah, everyone can give you the good example, but you want to really understand like where it's gone awry and how they've course corrected from that. So I don't know that it's wildly different from how we would communicate or ask questions normally in a behavioral interview, but focusing specifically in on those communications, both the written piece and the verbal piece. And then also we're doing more um, case studies. So giving people an example of something that's going on and asking them to react to it real time. That's been really telling for us. We're doing it on the HR side. Obviously we do that in sales, kind of stand and deliver, but really doubling down on making sure for our managers and leaders that we understand their communication style coming in and trying to see how that will translate in a remote way. Can you walk through one of those case studies or an example of what that looks like? 
On the HR side in particular, one of the things that is always tricky is like if you have a performance management issue, how do you deliver tough feedback or terminate someone, right? When you're doing it over Zoom, that's a a very different experience. So asking a person to kind of walk us through, okay, you've got a difficult situation. Take us through how you would run this if you're interviewing a business partner. How would you run this through with the manager? And so asking them very specifically, here's the situation. You've got an employee who, even if it's not termination, they won't turn their video on. They're very terse in emails. They're not on Slack. How do you get to the bottom of what's going on? So asking them to kind of walk through when you've got someone on the other end who's not being communicative, how do you get them to engage? And how do you dig in to understand what's going on from a just personal perspective, right? So giving them those situational pieces. And I think the performance one is often the most difficult one because they haven't necessarily done that before. So you get a pretty good assessment of how someone is thinking about what would I do if I was only able to do this over Zoom and I can't sit down with someone in a conference room? Given you're operating in different states and different countries around the world, what have you learned about how different people from different places behave differently. Yeah. So I think one of one of the things I always tell people is like context is wildly important. And so at Elastic, we have folks from 97 different nationalities. And I love that stat because it's just, it blows my mind. 40 different countries. And you can imagine the dozens of different languages that our employees speak, which is amazing. That said, styles of communication, and this is where things can get really tricky. So I tell people, if you see something over Slack, over Zoom, that doesn't feel right to you, part of our source code is don't assume malice, right? So assume positive intent. And a lot can get lost in translation. There's the culture map. There's a lot of different books that sort of go into great detail about different cultures and how they communicate differently, right? or how they would prefer to communicate. One of the conversations I had, this is several years ago, that really opened my eyes to this. I had a colleague, quite a senior technical person who is Japanese. And he's like, listen, if I had my way, I would always prefer to raise my hand in a meeting and have someone call on me. It's culturally difficult for me to just interject. Like we're having this rollicking conversation about a technical issue and it's I'm uncomfortable just sort of jumping in. And I think that gets exacerbated over Zoom. So how do you ensure that folks that culturally may not find it appropriate for just jump in the conversation? And let's say you've got stereotype of a bunch of noisy Americans that are just going and going. You can totally lose voices in that conversation because you aren't paying attention. One of the best things recently, we had a, a session on power and privilege in tech. And one of our engineering leaders, a woman who is Indian, and she said, I encourage people to respect the pause. She's like, because in my mind, I'm formulating what I'm going to say in a different language, and then I have to translate it to English, and then I'm going to say it. So it might take me a moment. So when I pause, it's not that I don't have something important to say or something powerful to say. It's just I need a, I needed a little bit more time. And so that's kind of been our new catchphrase is just respect the pause, because it doesn't mean that someone isn't going to say something. They just might need a little more time. So that's, I think, one of the biggest takeaways for us around just how people want to participate and communicate that can create conflict, it can create misunderstandings. And so really, I tell people two things, like give people time, call on people as a manager, like be aware of how different folks on your team want to communicate. But then also, if something comes across and it feels insensitive or it feels a little bit off, just say, hey, I'm not sure what you were trying to get at there, as opposed to assuming that they were being malicious or had, you know, had poor intent because that context of where you come from and how are you used to communicating and even the language in which you're used to communicating are super, super important. So that's probably the biggest thing that we'll bump into that we're trying to coach managers on being a lot more aware about. 
are there other rituals or habits that you've developed? It could be in meetings. It could be in the way that you communicate across the entire company, like respect the pause that you found useful. I would just think it's such an interesting problem. You have cultures that are hierarchical. You have cultures that are direct. You have cultures that are more oriented around the hours I work than the output that I have. I mean, there's just so many things. Even when you when you have a diverse group of folks that all live in the same city, let alone different countries. And so I, I'm curious with other habits or practices that you've developed over the years that you think help enable people to be super productive, for people to feel welcomed, and for people to feel like they can do their best work. I mean, I think there's a couple things related to communication and then a couple things just in terms of how we work. In addition to that, respect the pauses, really encouraging people to, as much as possible, use very plain language. So in written communications and in verbal communications, I tend to speak very, very quickly so we always joke that a lot of our engineers will listen to things, whether it's a podcast or a book on tape or a, you know, a meeting playback on Zoom, they'll speed it up. I was like, yeah, they can't when they get to me because I'd sound like a chipmunk. <laughs> I speak very quickly normally, right? So really encouraging people to be clear, use plain language. And everyone does this. It's pervasive. Don't use analogies, whether they be sports, particularly sports analogies, move it up the field. There's a zillion of them because not only does not everyone care about that particular sport, but they very often do not translate globally. So there's, there's things like that to be very cognizant of. And I think one of the things we are just very open. So have the opportunity often once a month, we do an ask me anything forum with all of our executives and a lot of companies do this. So this is not rocket science, but I do think it plays to ensuring that folks understand what's going on and feel comfortable about what's going on. And I always encourage, there's sort of nothing that's out of bounds for those. And if it is out of bounds, we're really clear, like for various reasons, whether it's because we're public or this or that, like we're not going to answer that right now. So I think that we just over-index on the transparency and clear communication piece. And then we've got our source code. And I don't know if you've ever seen the Elastic source code, but it's not a set of values, but it's a set of statements and sort of ideas that really... I think make elastic elastic. And so we try as much as possible to tie the things that we do back to that source code. When we are rewarding people or acknowledging a job well done, tie it back to like, hey, you're really, this is really emblematic of that piece of our source code. So things like come as you are, humble, ambitious, simple progress, simple perfection, right? These are things that we try to live and breathe. And that having those baseline things, I think really enables us. People know when they come in, I don't think I've talked to a candidate in recent history where I'm like, hey, did you like the source code? They're like, it was definitely a reason I decided to join Elastic. We're very clear about the things, who we are and what those things are. Can you talk a little bit more about the source code and maybe how it differs from sort of standard values or well-done employee handbooks or what have you? For sure. I mean, I think when we went through it, like I said, they're not a, you know, people say we value authenticity, right? They're not a set of statements. They're sort of more around ideas. And I always tell people they are both aspirational, true and aspirational, right? We live in that tension between that. And ultimately they sit on top of a phrase, which is speed scale relevance, right? Unless we can operate at speed, we can scale and we are relevant to our customers, none of the source code stuff matters, right? So we tie them together with, this is all about a great business as opposed to just some fluffy words on a wall that people are like, eh, okay, fine. And I think one of them that I love is 01.02 comma backslash format. 
And it's all about being distributed, right? And so I always ask people when I do new hire training, like 01.02, like what's that date? And everyone sort of chuckles because could be different things depending on what part of the world you're in. So we talk a lot about that we have to really be intentional because even a date can cause confusion depending on your location. There are things like that. This idea like empathy has to be the center of all that we do. That idea of a diverse elastic is great, but that is also hard. And so how do we make sure that clarity is part of what we do, but also not assuming malice, also being empathetic. So I, I think that what I love about them is like, it's, it's, it's a set of ideas as opposed to like words or statements. And they're really open for interpretation, right? So everyone looks at the source code and takes different things away from it. You know, there are pieces of it that for me, I'm like, yeah, that doesn't totally resonate with me, but I love the rest of it. And so I don't expect people to be adherent to a set of things. It's more like, do you believe in that idea? And if that idea is exciting to you, then this is a great place for you. And I think that is how people engage with it um, and get excited about it. But it's definitely something that we spent probably a year and a half really creating because it needed to feel very true to who we were. Can you talk about maybe a story or something that comes to mind where the source code or the way in which you articulated your values was particularly impactful or showed them kind of living in the real world? Yeah. There's two that really pop for me. And I think one is humble, ambitious. I was teasing our CFO about this before our earnings call this week because we're doing great things in the world and we have amazing people here, but everyone is incredibly humble. And I always use like Shai, our CEO, I'd love to tell the story where he was on a flight sitting in coach next to some guy they got to chatting. And it turns out that the gentleman he was sitting next to was a product manager at another tech company. And you know, the guy asked him like, oh, where do you work? He's like, oh, I work at Elastic. And so they were chatting. This guy was unloading about what he thought about Elastic and good, bad, and otherwise. And, you know, Shai's like, oh, that's really interesting. Have you thought about this? And so they had this very engaging technical conversation. And at the end of the flight, the guy's like, oh, sorry, I didn't introduce myself. I'm John. And Shai said, oh, I'm Shai. And this, the guy realized like he'd been talking to the CEO for a couple hours in this flight. And Shai never said, hey, I'm the CEO or I'm the I'm the guy who actually wrote the original code. And And he would never do that, right? He's just a very humble guy. And I think that sort of humility at the top really permeates through the organization. The source code, that the humble, ambitious is the tag, but ambition drives us to challenge ourselves and the people around us to do better. It's not an excuse to be an asshole. And that is literally our source code, right? Be humble, be ambitious at Elastic. We're both. And I think that people get that because I think a lot of people have worked at companies where the brilliant jerk exists, right? And that just doesn't fly at Elastic. I mean, I think for me, early days, we had an engineer who was brilliant and kind of top of his game in a particular part of our stack. And he was a tyrant and it was very public. It was on GitHub. He was making comments. He was sending emails and no one thought we would fire the guy because he was so good. And we did. And I think that just sent a really strong message early on about like, listen, that that's not going to work, right? You can be great at what you do, but you also have to be good to the people that you work with. We've added several new leaders over the course of the last year. And that's really, as we're looking at these very senior C-level folks, we really push on that, right? Because the tone at the top, from my perspective, is extraordinarily important. In fact, perhaps the most important with some of these things. And we've got it in spades, which is really great. How do you interview or evaluate if someone's humble? And have you ever thought someone was humble in the interview process and you hired them and they turned out not to be? Yes, uh, we certainly have done that. <laughs> I always tell people like, to use a sports analogy, you're never going to bat a thousand. So right, you're never going to be perfect. No company is, no matter how structured, how process oriented your interview processes. It's not perfect. We're humans. It's so it's happened. 
I always ask people, what are you proud of? And it's always very interesting to me where people take that question. And if it's an I-centered statement or if it's about the team or if it's about their family, where do they go? And I always sort of use that as a little bit of a litmus test to understand how they orient their success. And it can be very telling. Are there any other ways that you evaluate if somebody's humble? I think we always, particularly with senior folks, we'll ask our recruiting coordinators, hey, what's your experience been with this person? How do they treat the folks that are perhaps not as visible? I don't know. I've interviewed hundreds of people over the years. So you, you, you start to get a sense for your meter for what's, how does personality come through gets pretty good. But I think there's also, you know, we've absolutely had people that were rude to coordinators or rude to our EAs. And we're like, yeah, that's not going to fly. Like these folks are the heart of what we do. They make the wheels turn. And if they can't behave well to them in this process, like, mm -mm. so I think we spent a lot of time just how are you engaging with everyone that you're touching along the way? Because, you you know, you have people that can kiss up and kick down and that's that's also not going to work. And like I said, it's not perfect. I can't claim that we haven't hired people that do that. And I feel pretty confident that for the most part, it's like, yeah, that that's not going to stay long, right? It's not going to work long. And if you can't adjust it, you won't be here. Flipping back to the earlier conversation we were having about building distributed company, are there Things that have surprised you most or stories that come to mind that kind of were unlocks for you when thinking about how do you effectively build a distributed company? I mean, I think one of the things was our sales leader saying, because you think, gosh, this is something so new and something we've never done. And he's like, yeah, but I, he's like, I've literally always had distributed teams my entire career because our sales teams are regional. And it was like, oh, well, why have we not thought about it for um, you know, we build distributed systems. Why not teams? That was like just a, an aha, just from an overall, like, oh, right. This isn't groundbreaking. Lots of teams have done this. We just are thinking about it and talking about it in a different way. But for, for me, I mean, I don't think there's a particular unlock. I just, it was a bit of a leap of faith to say, I'm going to go as a people leader, go do this. Because I, you know, I hadn't been working in tech. I had never heard of Envision, you know, these companies that have done it for a long time. But I'll, I'll think about that. I don't know that there was one like, whoa, aha, I had to build a team virtually from scratch. I do think the idea of like, can I do this successfully was a scary one. My first hire was in the Bay, but then they moved to South Carolina because we had such a strong connection. I'm like, oh, I get this. Like I, we, I know you, right? And so for the next hire that wasn't here, it was again, that very personal, like how do we connect and are we going to be able to communicate effectively? So it was just the, I think for me, the unlock was like it, the, the importance, that critical importance of those one-on-one -on -one relationships in your key roles is paramount. And and before I was like, yeah, this person, yeah, like they're good. And I think, you know, I think we'll do fine. Whereas it, there can't be any doubt. So that was something that was really important to understand. Like if you have a doubt, trust your gut. And we've seen this play out where people leave in less than a year and you go back and you look at the scorecards from recruiting. There was a doubt there. There was a seed of like, well, not sure about this aspect, but I'm willing to give it a chance because I, you know, like we've been looking for this role for so long and then it doesn't work. So it just is, I think, reinforced trusting your gut, having a great process, but then if something doesn't feel right, trust your gut. On your point about building human connection, are there things you've learned about how to do that virtually other than starting with somebody who's deeply empathetic and communicates well? I think realizing that we'll probably take more time than it would if you were going to see them in person on a regular basis. So I think it can draw out sort of these timeframes of getting to know a person. But then I think in, in parallel to that, like being very thoughtful about taking time that isn't work time. So, 
hey, you know, we're working together. That's great. But let's get to know each other personally. And let's have a happy hour. Everyone's like, oh, no more Zoom happy hours. Like <laughs> we're over it. But pre-COVID, really making that effort to say, how do we ensure that we're also taking time to just bond as humans, right? As opposed to going over the the presentation or going over the numbers. Let's just make sure that I know who you are, right? I know what's going to make you tick. Because ultimately that's going to give you a better outcome. And when something does go wrong, you're also going to have a better sense for like, something seems off, you know, what's going on? How can I help? Again, these are things that even if you're not distributed, like without a foundation of trust, you're only going to get so far. But if you have that foundation of trust and the people that work for you or that work on your team believe that you care about them, that you have their best interests in mind, that they're not just a cog in the wheel, you will have a better outcome. And that doesn't, I mean, that's whether you're distributed or not, but I think it is even more critically important now where you have to create the experience of getting to know one another in a different way. Are there specific topics or questions that you tend to utilize to build trust or connection faster, you know, other than maybe checking in on somebody or before you start a meeting? Things like, you know, if you had another hour in the day, how would you spend it? Going back to like, what are you most passionate about? What are you most proud of? If you didn't have to work, what would you do? right? Just understanding what's behind the person, right? That's behind the email, that's behind the Slack. And it's interesting, right? Because some people don't want to have you in their business, right? So Elastic engages a certain kind of person. I think people that are here tend to share a lot. We tend to share a lot as leaders. We are very open. We're very transparent. Um, my team loves to joke that like everyone's seen me cry because <laughs> I'm kind of a crier. I get really passionate about things or really deeply engaged in things. And yeah, I'm okay with that. So I think just asking them the questions about what makes them tick. What are you doing this weekend? Eventually, if they have a family, like, what are your kids into? Do you have a pet? You know, all of those things. And I think that that level of connection, simple things, right? It doesn't have to be complicated. It builds that trust. What are the rituals that you have at Elastic that you find are most impactful? It could be the way that you communicate something or the way that you run in all hands or anything. So our AMAs are Ask Me Anything. I love them for a couple of reasons. So we're an open source company. Because we're open source, there's an ethos that sort of permeates everything that we do around being open. And so Ask Me Anything's started really at our user conferences. There's a booth and it's an AMA booth and you can go and you can ask our engineers anything. And so this idea of AMA is something that we've then ported over to meetings, right? So we do an AMA with our leadership team and the whole company every month. I do an AMA with my entire HR team. And a lot of leaders do this on a monthly or quarterly basis. But this idea of just openness, that is something that is a ritual, if you will, for us. The other one that I, I think has turned into a really cool ritual is something that during COVID times, we've started and it started as kind of a, a weekly update from the CEO on like, here's what's going on. Here's our office closures. It started as kind of a rote thing that we sent out to just kind of keep people posted. And then we sort of spaced it out to every two weeks. And it's become this really wonderful vehicle for Shai to just share something. He'll pick a topic, often very personal, very intellectual. And it's just, it's become like this really, I think people really, you know, like there's the COVID update, but then there's like, what's Shai going to talk about in his life? That's really interesting, whether it's about a podcast or books or movies, or how is he thinking about recharging his batteries? Like it's become a ritual that folks, folks are really, I'm like, okay, it's time for the COVID update. And I, we work with our incident management team and we get kind of the nuts and bolts, but it's like, I was, you know, when we started this, I was sort of ghostwriting a little bit and I'm like, nope, he's just going to write something really powerful. And so I think that's a ritual we've gotten into that I think is really cool that I, I hope continues. 
are there any other rituals that come to mind or little things that you do that you think have outsized impact on the way that you work? It's like a great question because rituals become habit. And so you don't always recognize that they are rituals until someone new comes in is like, wow, that's so cool that you do that thing. I think the other, you know, and I would call it a ritual that we have is since the beginning, we've had um, X school, which is our one week of employee onboarding. And obviously for a long, long time, we flew everyone in to Mountain View for a week in their first month or two. And we've had to pivot that ritual to totally online. And how do you translate a four-day in-person experience into a four-day virtual experience? And I really love, I do think it's, we pulled out kind of like, what are the important pieces of that? Ritualize effectively. And I think one of the great parts of that is every one of our executives presents. We ensure that our folks get exposure to you know, it's one thing when you're 300 people, it's a whole different thing when you're 2000, like everyone's getting exposure, all of our new hires to our entire executive team. Each executive has kind of their own piece that they present around the business. But also we do separate from what we do for the whole company, we just do kind of a round table for just our new hires. And it's a really intimate gathering. We always have the same questions and it's around who is a mentor, what are pieces of advice. And I feel like that's become a really cool new ritual that I hear our newer hires talking about. Like I've never been in a company that has its executives spend so much time with new hires. And I think that just speaks to leading from the top and tone of the top and culture. So I love that ritual of our new hire onboarding because it really does help people understand. We weave that source code through all of it and having our executives be very open and transparent, I think is a, a really special part of that. Can you talk a little bit more about what the four days looks like now? Sure. We sort of have an arc and I, I want to make sure I articulate this right. So I'm, I want to get the, the agenda because I think it's, it's really interesting how we've started to structure it because we had to get a lot more thoughtful about how do you condense all of this stuff into four days. And so really each day sort of thematically is about understanding that there's sort of three goals for it, right? Understand our company and our solutions and what makes us elastic. So we've got the piece around sort of product and business, really tying that source code piece in. And then the third piece of it is how do we work and be successful in this environment? So I think having having each day be specific. So Monday is about what makes Elastic Elastic. So it's really focused on the source code and who we are. Tuesday, we talk about connecting the nodes. So how do all the pieces of our business tie together? The next day is the Elastic Hour. Like what's the strategy of the business? Like where are we going? And then to wrap it up, we talk about kind of mindset and how do you be effective here? And then we do a virtual volunteer session because this virtual volunteering is a really important part of who we are. So each day has become much more thematic and condensed. So before where a person might've had an hour, we're like, okay, you've got 15 minutes. What are the critical things? So it's really forced us to distill what's critical to ensure that people understand the business, the how of the business, the how of Elastic and how to be successful here. And I think that it's been really cool to watch that transform. So I think now we've thought about like, hey, if we could do this again in person, how could we expand that? But we really love the red thread that we've woven through it, that we didn't feel like it was as cohesive before. Sometimes, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So I think we've really took something that was already really cool and just really made it extra special. So going back to the broad theme about operating a distributed company, can you share how organizational design team structures map to locations? Anybody can do anything from anywhere, or there's an approach to how teams are structured, what time zones they need to be in, what functions they're in. Is there like a certain time that everybody's working or the fact that that would obviously be impossible if around the world that there's all sorts of considerations? Different companies do it differently. 
For us, it's a bit mixed. There are functions like regional marketing where obviously they are regionally based because they are aligned to regional sales teams. And you you wouldn't have a you know a regional marketing person for EMEA based in California, obviously. And there's language considerations, all of those things. So there are teams that are specifically regional. Engineering is probably the most interesting one where our teams in engineering have been the most distributed for the longest time in terms of the we've never had intact engineering teams. With the exception of where we've been acquisitive and we've perhaps joined forces with a a smaller company, and then they've had a team in a place. But as they grow, we also ask them to hire outside of that place so they become more distributed. What we're finding from a management perspective is we want to ensure that it can be very difficult to manage if you have a team spread over, let's say, 12 different time zones, right? When do you sleep? So we are definitely thinking about certain teams like customer support, right? We have a follow the sun model. So ensuring that we've got managers that are regionally based. So their span of time zones that they have to manage through, there's some bound on that. As teams are growing and designing, like where are we going to grow? We always encourage managers to say, hey, where are your people based now? And is that next best hire? They're like, oh, we found this, you know, our team is all, you know, they're on the East Coast of the US and in Europe. And we found this great person in Australia. And you sort of ask the question, like, what is that experience going to be like for that team member who is in a time zone that is not compatible with virtually anyone else in the team? So we try to be very conscientious, although we have this for most jobs, you can work anywhere, be very conscientious about what is the experience going to be like for that team member if they are not within three to four time zones of anyone else. That becomes really, really important. What we're seeing now as teams get bigger and bigger and we're hiring you know, additional managers is thinking about, does it make sense to have, we've got a, a huge engineering team and they are really distributed. Does it make sense to have a manager be more regionally focused versus being maybe focused on a specific part of the team or a specific product within the team? Because we've seen some burnout happening where you know, managers like, I start my meetings at 7am and then I'm working through dinner or I'm getting back on really late and it's just, it's not sustainable. So being very conscientious of that, there's a lot of things you can hack. Time zones are not one of those things. And that makes a huge difference in terms of org design. So that's, that's something that as we've grown, I think we've become better at and more thoughtful about. How do the nuts and bolts of payroll and employment law work when you have people in 40 countries? They're real complicated. <laughs> Certainly, if you're a hundred thousand person company, you have a very mature HR um, infrastructure, and you have offices around the world. But when you're a few hundred or five hundred people, and now obviously you're a couple thousand, it seems mind-bendingly complicated. I'm not going to lie, Brett. It is organizationally and operationally challenging. And honestly, I spent probably my first two and a half, three years just trying to figure out how do we dig ourselves out of the operational debt. People talk about tech debt all the time. They don't necessarily talk about operational debt. So my CFO and I talk a lot about that. We grew really fast. We're in all these places. What's the optimal entity structure? What's the right payroll provider? And those are not easy questions to answer, nor are there necessarily awesome solutions in the marketplace for some of these things. I think that, you know, I always encourage companies that are thinking about that strategy, like don't just like, oh, we're just going to hire and we'll figure it out later. Go into it with a more proactive operational mindset, because that's the stuff that can trip you up, particularly payroll. Like people not getting paid is the one thing you really, really do not want to happen. In fact, our Canadian employees, they still, they still call it the payroll lottery because we weren't set up with a bank in Canada. We were having to pay our folks in Canada through a bank in the Netherlands and there was a wire and it was, I was delayed. And so it would hit different banks at different times. And it was like an ongoing joke in Slack about like, did you get paid? Did you get paid? Did you get paid? Like who won the payroll lottery today? Like that is not something as an HR leader you want to have, right? So I, I think the operational pieces are tricky. And and going back to that, I always 
bring it back to what's the experience that an employee is going to have if we are so distributed that our operations are in chaos, right? So if you want to deliver a really exceptional employee experience, you have to be thinking about those operational aspects ahead of time. That's not easy. Are there any specific providers or pieces of technology that have helped you with these operational payroll in all these different countries? Not that I would heartily recommend, honestly. We have a blended employment model. So we have people that are direct employees. We have entities in like 25 different countries. We use PEOs in a number of countries. And then we have people that we contract with directly for a variety of things. And this is probably one of the number one questions I get asked by other people like, hey, do you like your PEO? And I'm sure you've heard this, and I'm sure you have portfolio companies looking for this. There's not an awesome solution. So I think for us, because we are in so many different places, we are actually in the middle of going through a huge payroll implementation to get a better payroll provider to ensure that we can better service our employees. So we're moving to a company called TMF, and they've got a strong reputation. I think for us, we went to Workday about a year and a half ago. They integrate with Workday, which is incredibly helpful to us. And they have local payroll teams. And so some of the times what you'll find is like the PEO is like, yeah, we serve all these countries, but then they've got a third party working for them in that country. And so you, it's to get to the actual person that's going to be able to solve your problem is really tricky. So we've now found what we believe is a better global payroll provider. We've got a rollout plan for all the countries that will be shifting to TMF over the course of the next nine months. It's not easy. It's really not easy. And so understanding, I think particularly for small companies that are growing fast, thinking through all the implications of hiring a person and not even just in a different country, in a different state in the US, you have different payroll taxes, you have different local taxes, you have different, all these different things that you have to think about corporate taxes. So being, being really thoughtful about, are we able to do this thing in that place? And can we get people paid? Can we employ them in a compliant and legal way? It's fine to run fast, but also I would emphasize that the cleanup you may have to do is not insignificant. So being a little bit more structured in your plan for being distributed or plan for working remotely upfront is going to save you a lot of headaches on the back end. How have you chosen to approach compensation worldwide? That's a great question and a very hot one in the market right now. We pay locally. So for example, in the US, we have two pay zones. We have a premium pay zone and a national pay zone. Not surprisingly, premium pay zone is the Bay Area, New York, LA. There's a few cities. And we look at it on an annual basis. Globally, similarly, we have regional pay zones. So typically by country, but there are countries like the UK where London is in a premium zone, Paris is in a premium zone in France. So we have this kind of global model. And similarly with equity, it's not quite as complex, but we have six equity zones. And again, it's based on the market data. So I know it's it's like the hot topic of like, well, why don't you pay the same, same work, pay the same? And we don't believe that that's an equitable way to pay. So if you think about the, you know, the cost of living and the cost of labor in different places, paying someone a Bay Area salary in some place in, let's say, Bulgaria or Slovenia, that you're paying them a disproportionate amount relative to the, what you're paying the same person for the same work in the Bay Area. So it's a very hot topic. I think companies land in different places, but we've been really consistent about our pay philosophy since the get-go. We have a published, like we have shared our compensation philosophy with all of our employees and all the, the different aspects of it, where we pay from a market perspective, our approach to equity, our approach to cash, how we think about it on an annual basis. So we're pretty transparent about that, but definitely have a, a regional model from a pay perspective. 
Yeah, it's interesting how, and maybe because so many people are thinking about remote, this question of do you sort of pay locally or not? And so what I'm hearing you say is that the reason that you've chosen to sort of not just pay everybody the same thing for the same work is that you actually believe that it's unfair to do so. Yeah, it's not, it's, that is not equitable pay. If you think about what does your dollar get you? So thinking about it in a regional way, it's tricky and I can appreciate the, the other side of it. But I think what's important for companies is like pick a philosophy, align to it and be super crisp and clear and stick to it. The last few topics I wanted to hit on. One is, are there mental models or frameworks that you've come to rely on most, either as an HR and people leader or as somebody who thinks a lot about building distributed teams? Are there things that you repeat a lot or stories that you tell a lot or things that you feel like a broken record that are important to the way that you run the company? Yeah. I mean, I think that the thing that I'm becoming more of a broken record, broken record on is process. Having been at several high growth small startups that have become bigger companies, that freewheeling, like, oh, we're just going to, we don't need to have a process for this because we just get it done and everyone knows who to talk to. And so I think that that is the one thing. I mean, I even heard myself saying this yesterday to my leadership team. Like I, I recognize that it's a small group, and we're, but I, I want the same structure and process on this project as my head of ops and systems and like the kind of operational side of my business has for our big projects. We have to approach everything in a much more systematic way. And I think that is something I hear myself saying more often, like, well, where's the project plan? What are the goals? What are the, like, I need just a couple framing slides, like just getting us in the habit of being more process oriented because you realize you're having to bring more people along on a journey and without those points of reference, it's really hard because that tribal knowledge that, you know, you just, you're so used to working that way that I think that's a shift. And I don't think that's about being distributed, although I think it's important as a distributed company. I think that's about scaling, right? And how do you scale effectively and ensure that everyone has the information at the time they need to know it, right? How do you do that in a really structured way? So it is something that is, I think, key to scale. And I think also incredibly important when you're working asynchronously, you need a framework to hang that on. How do you keep that from slowing the entire company down? One of the things that's obviously clear is generally speaking, as companies scale, things get slower. And you tend to see this in its logical extreme in corporate America. Let's say you're a 200,000-person company, and it, it feels maybe anecdotally like 80% of the work isn't even the work. It's getting people on the same page getting the plan right. And it's it's also a fascinating topic because nobody nobody wants it, right? You, you never talk to somebody and say, yeah, things are going great. We're incredibly bureaucratic, takes a really long time, and I feel good about it. <laughs> yeah. Yet in almost yeah. every company, there, there's a small number of companies that have actually, I think, increased pace as they've scaled, which is kind of a special thing. I, I'd say anecdotally, AWS has done this. I'd say anecdotally, Stripe has done this. And so I'm just curious how, how you sort of map that to your thinking about process as you scale. So I think it maps actually very well. This idea of like go slow to go fast is I think gaining traction. And if you take a little bit more time up front to drive that alignment, to make sure everyone is on the same page, that we're thinking about the right things, you will accelerate on the back end. The specific project that I was talking to my team about, I'm like, we've been talking about this for six months and it hasn't gone anywhere because we haven't 
put structure around it. We would end up talking about it for the next six months because we've got a doc, but we don't have a timeline. We don't have any goal. It's like death by a thousand cuts. But I think if you take that upfront time, now there's a balance, right? Like you can overdo it, but simple structure, clear articulation of like, here are the three outcomes we want. Here's the timeline we want to hit. Like that's structure up front. So everyone is super clear. Are we all aligned that these are the goals? You hold hands and you jump together. You will go faster. And I always tell people like, if you want people on the landing with you, they have to be there on the takeoff. If they are not on the takeoff and then you've landed, you're like, well, shit, now I have to go back and like pick them up again, right? Because we weren't together. So I think that idea of like go slow to go fast is what I think about in terms of how do we make sure we've got the right up front stuff. So when we want to hit the gas, we're ready to hit the gas. I, I think where people fall down on that is that it, you don't get that alignment up front. And I think, you know, as you get bigger, that alignment is harder to get. So people maybe aren't as comfortable getting it or don't know how to get it. And so I think having simple structures and frameworks that people can use makes it more efficient, not less efficient. Sort of on a related note, do you have any thoughts on just broadly speaking context and communication? One of the things that I've noticed is that, you know, feedback you will often get is I was out of the loop on this, or I didn't know about this, or I didn't have context. It's actually very hard. It's, it's very challenging to know who needs to know what at what time. And it's hard to get, give everyone everything at all times. And yet at the same time, you organically have access to all sorts of context, understanding information. And figuring out who needs what at any given point in time is exceptionally hard to do. And so I'm curious if you learned anything about that or do you approach that in some sort of way? This goes back again to that little bit of like, you know, go slow to go fast and thinking through those pieces of, and this is a classic, I mean, a classic trap startups fall into, right? And I've been there, I have been there, where it's not just that people are used to having all the information, they suddenly feel like somehow it's like they get pissed off when they don't have all the information because they always used to have the information. We always used to tell everyone. And I was joking with someone about like, yeah, benevolent dictatorship is kind of the best way to go because it's like not, yeah, everyone, you might inform everyone, but everyone doesn't necessarily get an input anymore. And that can be a shift in companies. And so it's it's really hard. And I think about this with my team a lot and with my leaders as we're changing things and I'll hear people say, well, I, yeah, I talked about it this meeting. I'm like, yeah, but was everyone at the meeting? Well, no, a couple of people weren't there that day. Well, okay. So again, coming back to written communications, ensuring that as you're setting out on something you've thought through and it's imperfect, right? You've thought through who needs to know this and you're setting that context. And I, I truly believe one of a leader's most important jobs is to set context and to even be candid for like, Hey, we're embarking on this project. Here are the three goals of the project. There are going to be milestones along the way where we're going to check in with you and we'll let you know what's going on. So don't want you to think that if you don't hear anything, work's not happening. But we're only going to come back to you on January 21st and then March 22nd and April 3rd, whatever it is. Again, this comes back to clarity of communication and helping people understand, like laying out the picture, laying out the path for them. And fundamentally as a leader, like it's your responsibility to understand and to parse out like, okay, I have this huge amount of context. I will overwhelm the team. If I give them all of that, what are the three most important things for them to know? And then what are the three most important things for the team below them to know? And so helping drive that context at the appropriate level down into the organization is pivotal, but you're, you're absolutely right, Brett. It's not easy to do that. And I think that's something where companies, leaders, managers fall down because they assume because I said it in this meeting that everyone heard it or everyone heard the same thing. So I think this is, you know, like to say it and then to follow up with the written communication, because again, things get lost in translation. Not everyone has the context. 
someone might not have understood. It happens all the time. So the clarity of communication and just sort of really being crisp about who needs to know what and when they need to know it is extraordinarily important. To wrap up, I'd love to end on the topic of what you've learned from the people that you've worked closest with. Um, and maybe just focus on, we could focus on maybe the last five years at, at Elastic. And you think about folks that you've worked really close with, what are the lessons that they've taught you or ideas that have really stuck or maybe ways in which you've changed the way that you behave or think based on, on any of them? I think one of the things I've learned, and this is this is shy, repeatedly reminding me <laughs> over the years, like particularly in HR, there's just a, the team has done a ton, lots of good stuff is happening, but sometimes I forget to like, and I tell this to leaders all the time, like don't forget to share your good news. If your team's done something really great, like call it out. You never lose by thanking people and calling out good work, right? That only builds goodness. That's something I've seen a couple leaders do really well. Really understanding how impactful gratitude can be has been a lesson that I've learned from a couple different leaders over the last few years and try to take that as something that I, as you're rushing around, you're like, oh yeah, that was great. But being a little bit more thoughtful about it and sharing that up with the team, sharing that down with the team, that is really, really powerful. So that's probably the biggest one. Just being better at gratitude is something that I've learned. Anything else that jumps to mind? Being willing to pull the ripcord when you've, I mean, I think like hire fast, fire fast. I, that sounds I, maybe a little bit cold, but I think in a company like Elastic, we're really, really nice. Genuinely, when someone is floundering, it can be really hard to let them go because we're like, oh, but you know, they're so nice and they just got married or whatever the thing is. But I think that being cognizant that one person impacts a broader team and it's not just about that person, it's about the whole. I think that's something that is a, a new leader of a quite a large team has been something that I've had to learn probably the hard way. And so I'm, I'm trying to get better about that and encourage other people to be like, you know, it's actually a kindness when you, I mean, do it in a compassionate way in a very human way, but it is a kindness to not just that person, but the broader team that you need to ensure is healthy and thriving to make sure you're not holding on problems too long. That's interesting. I, I find there's always a category of things that you often need to learn by doing. Yes. And that even when somebody gives you advice, yep. for whatever reason, they could tell you, you're going to drive into this wall, you're going to drive into this wall. <laughs> there, there's a very specific set of things that you must drive into the wall to then realize. I totally agree. Ways with employees is one of maybe the top five things in company building. Do you have a theory as to why that is, if you agree with that? Maybe it's just, we all hate difficult conversations, but it happens over and over and over and over again. <laughs> it does. No, truly. I mean, a hundred percent, we all hate hard conversations. I think the the other thing is there's just, there's this human belief in like, no, they can just get there if I try a little harder, right? Like if I just put my shoulder into it and really work harder, I don't know, maybe that's just like in a very American, like, oh, if I just try harder, I can get it done. But yeah, like that fundamental belief, there's both the, like the cowardice of like, I just don't want to have the hard conversation. But I think there is a fundamental belief like, well, if I just coach them a little more, if I just give them this other opportunity, and that's just exhausting, right? That's exhausting for the folks around you watching you. And it's not always about letting a person go. I think there's a, in a startup in particular, and I've had to go through this evolution with my team. I've had several turns of the crank on this is, is people that are great in a role when the company is 200 people, probably aren't always going to be great in that role when the company is 1,000 people. They might still be great, but it's not in that role. So how do you ensure that you can think about where your talent needs to move 
and create those opportunities. Cause that's also like, those are also hard conversations to have in terms of like, listen, you're not scaling, but it's not about you're not scaling. Like I want to see you be successful, right? So let's find a better, whether it's opportunity here or elsewhere, but yeah, it's the same you do. I don't know anyone who hasn't hit that wall before. On that last point, do you tend to just do that in structured career conversations or are there ways that you've approached having those conversations and being proactive and trying to set somebody up potentially in a new role so that they can continue to grow with the company? We have a quarterly conversation. We don't do performance reviews. We have quarterly conversations that are meant to be more in-depth, kind of developmental. So I, I would say sometimes it's that. I think sometimes companies, especially small, like things can happen so fast. You very often don't have the luxury of that, right? It's just like, wow, we pivoted in the product direction. We acquired this other company. We Whatever the thing is, you, you can't wait till the, the next quarterly conversation necessarily. You have to act on it now. I always tell my leaders, I want you to always be thinking about, and I said this to Shai yesterday, I always need to be thinking about what are the next three critical roles on my team? Do I have the talent in those roles? If not, do I have someone I could build into that? Ta- like you, th- This is a critical part of being a great leader, a great manager is always trying to look around the corner. And I think if you're always trying to look around the corner, you're going to recognize like, oh, I see this person kind of slowing in terms of what they're able to do in that role, but they're really good at these things. So I think if we, you know, if we're growing and we know we need to hire these other five roles, potentially we could shift them here. So it's, I think, again, that's a muscle that you're not going to, as a new manager, why would you know how to do that? Right. I think that's something you build over time, but it's really about trying to look around the corner and anticipate what you will need as a team versus just necessarily having it. It's going to happen in all sorts of ways. Sometimes you do have the luxury to say, hey, in six months, I know we're going to need to do this. You are doing a great job at these things. Would that be something you're interested in? Or we're shifting in a different direction. I'm not sure that you're there yet. I want you to think about if you would be happy staying in a smaller role or if you think it might be time to look for something outside the company. People get really scared to suggest that a person looks elsewhere right? Because it somehow feels like a failure on your part, or it might scare them. But like, that's actually, you know, a really honest, I think, powerful conversation to have with someone. Great. Well, thank you so much for spending all this time with us. We so appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Hopefully there's some nuggets in there that are useful. 